Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, Tonight we'll read verses 1 through 14. We'll be studying really just the first 10. Uh, But that's the Old Testament prep for what comes in Christ in verses 11 through 14. And we'll speak to that, of course. The last few weeks we've seen the author say... That Christ is a better priest of a better covenant founded on better promises. And if that was just me talking, that would be arrogant. But it's not arrogant. It's rather humble to submit to God's own judgment about these things. And that's what chapter 8 verse 6 said. And that's what this whole book is about. How Christ is better. And so there's been this contrast lately between... Uh, the days of Moses, the covenant, the old covenant under Moses, and now with the coming of Christ, that which is superior in the new covenant. This week is a good illustration if you want to think about old and new in the transition. Today, many Christians are thinking of Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem to be killed. Next Sunday on Easter, many around the world will be thinking of his resurrection from the dead. And Friday is what's called Good Friday, perhaps, as you know, when Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed. Now, Good Friday is also, for the Christian, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Though in the Jewish calendar, that comes at a different time of year, the event of it for believers, for the world, the event of it in Christ is, again, the cross. The true altar of sacrifice is the cross. And the true blood of atonement that reconciles us to God is the blood of Christ. So we're thinking about these things uh, from Hebrews chapter 9. Tonight we'll hear verses 1 to 14. We'll consider the old covenant and new covenant worship. And how that teaches us the good news. Let me invite you to pay attention then to God's word. I'm on page 1005. This is the word of God. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant, or tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things. We cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. 
According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats... And bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Lord, grant that your word would bring joy to our hearts. Give us eyes to see. Lift Christ before us. Show us why not only the Jews of old, but we also need him. And why he's great. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is a balsa wood bridge. It happens to be, I think, the first sermon prop I have ever used. It also uh, happens to be just a portion of a bridge. You might notice it's broken. It was a high school uh, physics class competition in which my partner and I, Kathy, had to, along with others, make balsa wood bridges and then see how much weight they would hold and they kept adding weight until they broke and we won so it sits on a bookshelf in my office to this day I'll set it there for your pleasure it's balsa wood and glue it's no golden gate bridge it's just a model like what many architects would be required to make to give sort of a detail and proportion of some structure they really want to build with big money. Yet it's the reverse in a way. We didn't build this and then someone else built a bridge based on it. No, 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 no. Others made bridges and just with our best recollection of what a good bridge might be, we threw that thing together. Well, it's like that. Not thrown together, you understand. Not, uh, not sinfully made or sinfully thought through. Uh, but it's like that in the Old Covenant under Moses. God gave Israel a model. He gave them a weak, intentionally weak, temporary, and ultimately inadequate model that could not sustain the weight of the reality that needed to be dealt with. It was never intended to. It was but a shadow of a true reality, something substantial that God could really give us. That is himself, access to him, and a conscience that doesn't need to hide from him. 
We want to think about these things tonight as we consider the old covenant shadow and its deficiencies in verses 1 to 10 and Lord willing next week, the superior new covenant realities in greater detail, a great text for Easter Sunday resurrection. So tonight, uh, three things I want to highlight, verses 1 to 5. As we consider that old covenant and that old covenant worship, I want you to see, first of all, the author points us to the fading glory of the earthly tabernacle. Then at verses 6 through 8, the restricted access into that tabernacle. And verses 9 and 10, the limited effect of the ritual that took place in that tabernacle. In the first place, in verses 1 to 5, the fading glory of that earthly tabernacle. The author of Hebrews here acts like a tour guide of an important building, one that's ancient and historical. And he wants you to understand some of what was going on there and what was there. At verse 1, notice he says that even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, listen, you recall that before a temple was ever made and stuck in Jerusalem, a tent or a tabernacle was given to them to travel wherever they went. And then when it was set up, when they camped, God, as it were, came down and entered the most holy place and met with them in that temple. He lived with them. He traveled with them and he visited them in an Exodus Chapter 25, verse 22, he specifically tells Moses, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. And so, uh, and the very first thing I want you to recognize is that this reminds us that the Mosaic covenant, that old covenant, that first covenant that gave us the Ten Commandments of law and called for obedience was also gracious. That is, though it revealed God's law in great detail and though it called God's people to obedience, it was not ultimately the obedience that could save you. And it was never meant that way. All God's covenants call God's people to obedience because it calls us into relationship with God. There's always responsibility and relationship, though the performance of those responsibilities doesn't save you from the failures. Yet in all God's dealings after the fall, we should say, salvation has been by grace and not by works, received through faith, not by law keeping. And when God met Israel through Moses in a covenant in Exodus chapter 20 through 24. He gave them the commandments. He spelled out great details. That covenant also included the whole temple tabernacle complex with its priesthood and sacrifices of atonement. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling you. It belongs to that covenant. In other words, God was being gracious to them. As he's gracious and all the more to us. The writer here speaks of that worldly tabernacle or this worldly or of this world, of this earth. And he points us to some of its outward glory. And I want to point you to some of those things too. Notice what he says about it in the first place, what he doesn't. 
the, the tabernacle complex he speaks of as two rooms, and it, and it was, but it really had, we might say, so to speak, three rooms, in that there was an outer court that surrounded it uh, with fencing uh, so that not just anybody could come near it. And that outer court was uh, somewhere near the half size of a football field, and its entrance was on the east side, called the Tent of Meeting. And then you had the uh, long rectangular building itself, the tabernacle. Uh, it, um, on the outside of that building, there was an altar of burnt offering where the sacrifices were slaughtered, the blood was collected. There was a basin uh, for water where the priests could wash their hands and feet before they went in and did their work. And then there was a division of rooms in that building, two rooms. There was an inner room, the inner sanctum. It was a perfect cube, roughly, in, in cubits. It, it was roughly 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet, called the most holy place. And then there was, prior to that, the holy place. Not quite most holy. And it was twice as long. That outer room was 30 feet long and it symbolizes the whole thing symbolized the presence and the provision of God for his people and it did so in a whole variety of ways some of the furnishings point us to that notice he speaks of the holy place here and then he says and there was a lampstand I'm just going to walk you through the details there was a lampstand or a menorah it was on the south side in the holy place And it points to Christ as the light of the world. And in him, his disciples as the light of the world. And on the north side, there was a table with bread, showbread, 12 loaves of bread, one loaf of bread for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it served as food for the priests who labored there. And it does point us and remind us, as Jesus makes explicit, that he is uh, the bread of life. And there was an altar of incense. There's a a little bit of controversy about where it was located. Uh, It seems as though it belongs to technically the most holy place, but it had to have its um, its uh, it it had to be lighted every lit. It had to be it had to remain lit, and so it was actually outside. But the incense right at the door of the curtain or the, the the opening in the curtain. The incense would go on into the most holy place. It was the altar of incense. And, and if you look at Revelation sometime, we see an altar of incense. And it, and it shows us there that the prayers of the people of God go rise up to God. And so it was meant to show you that your prayers were going to God. And particularly that the prayers of the priests offered on behalf of the people were going to God. And inside that the most holy place, there was a veil that separated them. A beautiful ornate curtain and inside that most holy place there was the Ark of the Covenant a box that measured 45 inches long by 27 wide by 27 high the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's throne it was the symbol of his sovereignty and his reign over his people and inside that Ark there was a golden urn Uh, that had manna in it. You remember when Israel was in the wilderness and they thought they were going to starve and God said, I will provide. He provided manna for them. He said, I'll see to it. I'll take care of you. And he did. Well, that was in there. And Aaron's rod that had budded, this was that dead stick 
that had budded to indicate that Aaron had been chosen and the Levites to be the priestly tribe uh, to represent the people before God. Those things were in there and inside the ark was were the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the ones that God had written on in stone. And then what was over top of that ark was uh, a gold seat, the mercy seat. And upon that mercy seat, or Greek, uh, the place of propitiation, uh, blood was sprinkled by the high priest uh, to uh, the, the blood of sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. And then on the outer edges, there were gold cherubim whose uh, wings stretched out over that seat and overlooked it. The cherubim, it says, of glory. And some of you will remember Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 uh, of the cherubim in the temple singing, Holy, holy, holy uh, is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, this is representative of that. And so you've got all these things, these important items that have, we could speak for days uh, about what they mean and why and the implications, uh, but they certainly recognize that God was present with and God provided for his people. And just as he's telling you about all that stuff, And you're waiting for him to explain at much greater length because he doesn't really explain it all. And maybe you want to know more from me and I'm exhausting the limits of my knowledge without greater study. You want to hear more and and he just kind of dismisses it all. I mean, look at the language there at the end of verse 5. We just can't now speak in detail about these things. Let's move it along. He's not being disrespectful. Don't get me wrong. He isn't being unappreciative or flippant. But his purpose isn't to delight in the details. That would put the focus in the wrong direction. He's actually contrasting those things with the greater glory we have in Christ. And so he wants to talk about Christ. And how does it point us to that greater glory? Well, one way it does is this. It's interesting that the tour he actually gave you was the tour of the tabernacle as explained by Moses to the Israelites, which the author and none of his hearers and none of us have ever seen. He didn't choose the temple under Solomon or after its destruction, there was a later temple that existed in the time of Jesus. He doesn't explain to them the ongoings of the temple. No, he takes them back to a tent The temple was made of cut stone. It was massive. It was extremely expensive. The Jews were very proud of it. And even King Herod was forbidden upon the pain of death of going into it. And for all its apparent permanency, that stone cut temple in Jerusalem and its apparent indestructibility, It wasn't even as impressive as the movable tent made of wood and cloth. And do you know why? Because the temple in Jerusalem didn't even have the Ark of the Covenant in it in the day that the author is writing. In fact, very little was left in that temple. By the time of Solomon's temple, 
The pot of manna was already gone, as was Aaron's rod that had budded. Just disappeared from history. It's pure speculation to guess that maybe the Philistines got it when the ark had been away. Then in 587, the Babylonians had ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, taken the Ark of the Covenant. And the temple eventually had to be rebuilt, but the Ark disappeared. I don't want to say off the face of the earth, but we certainly don't know where it is. We know of nobody that's seen it since, despite what Steven Spielberg may have led you to believe in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It is not. Buried away in some basement in a box in Washington, D.C. to be toyed with by those who seek power. Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you know what I'm talking about. Nope, not that. Ultimately, and what's the point? Ultimately, from tabernacle to first temple to second temple, temple, even as the shell became more expensive more elaborate, seemingly permanent, you have a fading away of the objects of glory within it. They're just disappearing. And that is because ultimately it is not the place where God dwells, and it was never intended to last as the place where God dwells. It was but a shadow of the true reality where God dwells, where God meets with man, and where is that place? It's a person, and his name is Jesus. The Apostle John tells us in John chapter 1 that the Word, Jesus, became flesh, and he dwelt tabernacled among us and we he says have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth Jesus dwelt among us he tabernacled among us fully God and fully man true God and true man the union of divinity and humanity he is the place where God and people meet, and you can meet God in Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, For in him all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2, verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So I say to you, look to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you are united to him and therefore united to God because you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And if you, I want to say to my Christian friends, if you are ever lost in the woods and afraid or alone after midnight and tempted or alone in the midst of a crowd of people and lonely, you are never truly alone. God is near you in Jesus, God is with you, even in you, and he is an ever-present help in time of trouble. But we see him, not with the eyes of the flesh, but by the eyes of faith. And by the way, one last application on this point. This does remind us that the architecture of a ch- Christian church building is not vital to our spiritual health. I never know if I've got the temperature quite right, so you may wonder about your physical health before the evening is out. Some of you are going to freeze to death, perhaps. And I don't say that architecture 
in a church building is insignificant in some ways. In days of prosperity, Christians have built large cathedrals. In days of persecution, Christians have gathered in worship in underground caves. Cathedrals can make you feel small, and that can be humbling in a good way. But cathedrals can also leave you feeling very distant and cold from God and other people in a bad way. A cave alone is dark and cold, yet a cave packed with singing believers could be amazing. What turns your crank may not be what turns another person's crank, and that's okay. We're not supposed to see with the eyes of the flesh, but with the eyes of faith, and we're not supposed to walk by sight or walk by, but walk by faith. And it doesn't matter what the architecture really is to have God meet with you he meets us in jesus and that old covenant was just fading glory that's point one it was the longest part point two we see in verses six through eight the restricted access of the tabernacle for the people all those symbols in that tabernacle were signs of God's power and glory and provision and indicated his nearness to his people. And where are all those things? They're inside the tabernacle where no non-priest is ever allowed to go. And some of them are in the most holy place where only one priest, the high priest, can ever go but once a year. Why is he telling us this? Well, you can imagine the sense of sadness for God's people who couldn't see these things. There was a time when God's people got to see and even eat manna in the wilderness and see the tablets of stone that God wrote on with his own finger as Moses brought them to the people. They saw them, but now they're separated from them. They're kept back. They're told you may not enter and you may not gaze upon these things. In chapter 9, verse 6, he summarizes the activities of the priests. They get to see some of them. They went into the outer court. to Why? To trim the lamps that were burning, to replace the bread on the table uh, week by week. But only one time a year, the great high priest on the Day of Atonement, only he could pass into the most holy place, and he dare not enter without the blood of a sacrifice, which he purchased with his own money for his own sins offered, and then the blood of a sacrifice, which he also offered on behalf of the whole nation, the whole community of people. He dealt there with sin at the mercy seat above the law and before God's face and uh, the writer here mentions uh, that he offered these things uh, for unintentional sins and um, that language is used in the Old Testament but don't misunderstand it that word doesn't exclude deliberate sin it doesn't exclude sin in which you actually willfully entered into Sin And arguably, we could maybe talk about it, every sin you've ever committed has involved your will in some way, acting against the Lord. But it's a deliberate picking up of the Old Testament language that's contrary to the high-handed sin. 
the sin for which you could not be forgiven, the sin of which he spoke in Hebrews chapter 6 and will speak in Hebrews chapter 10, the sin of deliberately and defiantly um, turning your back upon the only God who is Savior. And so if you do that, if you say no to this Savior, to whom else will you go for salvation? There is no other place. Those, that sin cannot be forgiven you. But you are invited to turn and be forgiven. And so uh, he speaks of those. But again, the larger point he's driving at in this passage is what? Andrew Murray puts it this way. Quote, the veil was the symbol of this, that veil between the most holy and the holy. It was the symbol of the separation between a holy God and sinful man. They cannot dwell together. The tabernacle thus expressed the union of two apparently conflicting truths. God called man to come and worship and serve him. And yet he might not come too near. The veil kept him at a distance. Love calls the sinner near. Righteousness keeps him back. The Holy One, he goes on to say, bids Israel build him a house in which he may dwell, but forbids them from entering that house and into his presence. The way was not yet open. Verse 8, he speaks to that. The Holy Spirit was indicating that the way was not yet opened. As long as that first section was standing, that was a symbol for the present age, the age he was writing in, in which that temple still stood. Jesus had just come. That old was growing old and was dying away. But as we read at verse 11, but when Christ appeared of the good things that are to come, well, he went through the greater and more perfect tent not made with human hands to purchase an eternal salvation to secure an eternal salvation you see his point there is a way the old testament said and that way is not yet open to all of you but in jesus the author says the the most holy place is open the curtain in the temple that separates the most holy place from the holy place that curtain was torn in two at the death of jesus Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 tells you it was a a miraculous event. No priest reached up to this massive curtain or would dare to have done it. But while Jesus is dying upon a cross and the priests are ministering in their tabernacle, that curtain is torn in two, not from the bottom up as if a man did it, but from the top to the bottom by God. Jesus has passed through the curtain into the most holy place in our flesh by means of his own blood to open access there for all he represents, for all who believe in him. And so let me ask you, are you making use of that access? It is for every man and every woman, every boy and every girl. You have unrestricted access to God the Father through God the Son by the help of God the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ are you using that access what is it that's really happening when we pray when we approach God 
It's not that we're writing a letter hoping it gets delivered, whether rain, sleet, or snow. It's not that we're writing an email that may or may not get lost in cyberspace or overlooked in the trash box or what have you. It's not that we're in the basement of some high-rise building uh, working down there jotting notes to the big boss at the top of the building and putting them in one of those pneumatic tubes that we hope gets to the top floor where the secretary pulls it out, looks it over, and decides whether or not the boss is actually going to pay any attention to that letter. It's not any of those things. It is that you... Believer in Jesus are standing in the presence of God face to face before your father at the throne of grace and his ears are attentive to the prayers of his people. Just talk to your father. He's listening. You have that proximity in Jesus and that access. And finally, we see in the third and final place in verses 9 and 10, the limited effect of the tabernacle ritual to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It had a limited effect. Notice the language of verses 9 and 10. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. They couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They only dealt, he says, with regulations of the body. He's he's, um, thinking not just of the atoning sacrifices with the blood of the animal, but he's even thinking of the, the ceremonial and ritual washings that made things holy and able to be used in the most holy place. He's thinking of those external, uh, the external application of things to make things externally holy. All and he is speaking as well of those sacrifices which offered endlessly year after year could not cleanse your conscience ultimately from a sense of sin and guilt. And why? Because they had to be repeated year after year after year. It all just kept coming up. And it was all never finally and fully paid for, finished, atoned for until Jesus offered once for all the atoning sacrifice. That our conscience could be clear. That's the beauty of Christ. The new covenant sets things right and it makes permanent and effective what was temporary and symbolic. Does your conscience condemn you? I wouldn't be surprised if it did. I hope that it is so finely tuned to the truth of God's word that you don't just live a completely untroubled life While you do say, think, believe, feel, love, evil. That would mean your conscience was seared, scarred, not sensitive. Our conscience condemns us. Sometimes it does rightly because we're wrong. Sometimes our conscience condemns us wrongly 
Because we're not wrong, but, but we're malformed in the conscience. But the big issue is this. If you still think, if you also think at the same time your conscience is condemning you, if you also think that God condemns you, you will be like Adam and Eve who will hide from him as they did in the garden. You will always be ducking away from him. You'll fear him. You won't want to draw near to him. But the gospel is the good news that the chief of sinners may draw near to God through the blood of Christ. As we'll sing, when Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. One of the deficiencies of the old covenant worship, you don't have the outward glory in the presence of God that you think you do. You don't have the access to God that you really want. You don't have the clean conscience you really need. But you have all of these in Jesus. And I'll close with a story of Charles Simeon, who, uh, who was a godly uh, Anglican pastor at Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. He describes his own conversion, how he came to faith in Christ in, in 1813. He says this, As I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper, I met with an expression to this effect, quote, that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of the offering. The thought came into my mind, what? May I transfer, transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then, God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. And accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. Have you done that? If you have, you have God. You have access to God. And you have a clean conscience before God that you might serve the living God. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your generosity, for your mercy, for your grace to the undeserving and to your enemies. When we hated you and we were ungodly, Christ died for the ungodly. We bless you. Thank you. Grant that we would have greater confidence in him and come to you in his name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Rejoice together.